Welcome to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Bethany Branch Library on May 12, 2017. Katie from the Bennett Martin Public Library discusses the top 10 nominees for the 2017 One Book, One Lincoln program. My name is Katie Murtha, and I'm a librarian at Bennett Martin Library, and I'm the coordinator of the One Book, One Lincoln program. So um, thank you all for coming this morning. It's so exciting to see so many people here. Like I mentioned, this is uh, the first time we're doing this. This is a sneak peek at what's going to be the top 10 for One Book, One Lincoln. And if you're not familiar with the process, uh, basically we take uh, requests or um, suggestions all through the year. You can just go online. There's a a little link online to nominate a title. So we encourage everybody to nominate any books that they really enjoyed. And then at the end of January, we cut off the nominations for that year. And um, they're sent to our cataloging department. And they go through and they eliminate the ones that they can't get because um, we have to have multiple formats. We have to have books, and we have to have audio books, and increasingly we have to have electronic books. So it has to be available in multiple formats, and anything that we can't get in multiple formats gets eliminated. We end up with probably about 50 to 65 books that have been nominated, and then the, nominate, or the selection committee meets the beginning of February, and uh, we meet every two weeks, and we go through and we... We all read different books, and when we meet the next time, we recommend whether we're going to keep it on the list or whether we're going to remove it. And if there's any disagreements, we keep it. We have more people read. And every time we meet, we try to eliminate a certain number of books. And we get to the end of uh, March, and we're usually down to um, the top ten. Now, in the past couple of years, the selection committee has selected a, a winner, and I heard, I talked to a lot of people last year who were really disappointed in that. So this year we're going back to voting. Um, so we will have three, three books that are going to be um, released. The titles will be released on Memorial Day. And then you guys get to read them all through the summer. Um, our voting will be cut off on July 31st. So you can go online. There will be paper ballots. Uh, hopefully a really easy way for you guys to vote and we'll announce the winner on Labor Day. So kind of going back a little bit to what has been done, we're kind of always trying to tweak this program and make sure it's responsive to, um, to the readers because we really want you to enjoy what's, what's being selected and kind of meeting your needs. So I will start with the, the top 10. So in this group are going to be three that will be nominated or three that will be released on Memorial Day as uh, the ones that we will be um, having people vote on over the summer. It's actually going to pick them three. Yeah, the committee has picked three. Three out of this ten have been picked. So I can't tell you which three, but um, all right. So um, the first book we have for you is called The Rose, and it's by Louise Erdick. So on a North Dakota reservation, Landro Irons accidentally kills his best friend's son, Dusty Ravitch. He does this while he's deer hunting. So Dusty is also the best friend of Landro's only son, LaRose. And afterwards, Landro sends LaRose to live with the Ravitch family. And um, I guess that's kind of a Native American tradition. You're trying to replace one son that you've taken away. And he does that as a way to make amends for his actions. And so the two families have to learn resilience as each family copes with the loss of a son. 
Louise uh, Erdix had a uh, another one that was a. Um, um, the Roundhouse, I think, two or three years ago, yeah. uh, was one of oh, it was hers that was in the top three. But let me just read a small little um, section from this, and it says, "Larose opened his eyes wide at his father and did not blink. I wasn't uh, right in my head the day I killed Dusty. I did. I didn't mean to. I. I don't know. Um, my maybe my aim was off. But the point is that I was clumsy that day." LaRose frowned, and his father's heart stabbed. Did you see Dusty there? LaRose asked. Did you see the dog? What dog? said Landro. Well, Dusty fell from a tree branch, said LaRose, and I saw the place one night in my dream. I saw the whole thing. Dusty followed the dog into the woods, and the dog saw you. Ask the dog. Landro's brain began to hurt. You always had been a good aim before. My other dad said so. Peter, uh, yeah, well, you would have hit a buck. Well, that's true, said Landro, and the buck's still there, and I've seen it roaming in the woods. Well, Dusty told me you shot him on accident, said LaRose. Landro opened his arms to his son, and LaRose crept close to lie against his chest. They breathed together. LaRose loosened and took a big sigh and fell asleep, but Landro stayed wide awake, staring at the ceiling. The sky fell as it did each moment, and shame covered him, and he saw that he was supposed to share LaRose all along because the boy was too good for a no good like him. So um, it's a really interesting story. It, it, uh, you know, the death of um, Dusty impacts both families in, in different ways. Um, so it's kind of a combination. The, there's a, um, a Native American element to his actions, and then there's also uh, he's on a, a reservation that um, at one time had Catholic missionaries. So there's kind of like these two conflicting kind of ways of, of thinking, and uh, it's really uh, really well received by the committee. So we really like that. So the next one is called um, "This Is Where You Belong." It's by M Melody Warnick. And this is um, like, how do you connect to your community when you're new in town? And Melanie Warnick's husband is a college professor, and they moved every few years as his job changed. And when she moved to Blacksburg, Virginia, it was her sixth move since her marriage, and she was kind of lonely and depressed. And she missed her old friends in Austin, and she missed her old way of life. But she refused to give up on Blacksburg, and she came up with this list of 10 things to do to become more active in your community and to make community connections that uh, will help sustain your soul and help you feel rooted. It's so it's a nonfiction book. So um, this is you know, based on her, her actual move to Blacksburg, because when she got there, she didn't particularly care for it. There's 10 different chapters and different things to do and this is the the one that's on say hi to your neighbors so she says how precisely was I going to make friends with what I wasn't sure about mostly I knew new people at church where fellow congregants were morally obligated to be nice to me <laughs> uh, sometimes I chatted with other moms at school pickups and Quinn that's her husband waited for new colleagues to invite him to lunch 
In the first lonely days after moving to a new town, finding the right balance between want to be my friend and please don't notice how desperate I am for social interaction can be harrowing. How do adults meet anyway? Googling how to make friends in a new city produced 585 million hits with suggestions like join a club, join a church, sign up for a sports league or a running group, take a class, volunteer. Uh, go to a meeting of your local newcomers club, walk a dog, it's a great icebreaker, and have kids for the same reason. <laughs> a, a half a century ago, neighbors would have been the most obvious line of defense for forming social connections in a new town, long before joining a rec league or soccer team. In the 1950s, 44% of neighbors socialized with each other once a week. Neighborhood cocktail parties and poker games, picnics and potlucks dominated a person's social life. By 1971, that number had fallen to only 24%, and it continues to plummet. By the end of the 20th century, Americans spent 30% less social time with their neighbors than they had just 14 years earlier. So every chapter has kind of something to do, and then at the end of the chapter, she gives you um, a to-do list. So there's all kinds of things you can do. Um, and this one, she's got celebrate Good Neighbors Day on September 28th, um, join a newcomer's club, uh, keep a spreadsheet of the people that you meet on your block with names, uh, where they're from, where they work, what their kids are into, so you won't forget otherwise. Eat a meal with your neighbors. And she had this join your neighborhood uh, association. So I have to tell you this story. My husband was in the Air Force, and we moved here in 2000. We moved to Nebraska in 2010, and so I've been commuting for about six years back and forth from Papillion. And he finally retired, and we finally bought a house in Lincoln. And we signed on the dotted line, and the next week was our homeowners association reading. And, and so I was reading this book at the time, and I thought, okay, I really need to go to this homeowners association meeting. And, of course, my husband already had a commitment, so I was going to go on my own. And I was at the library because they just gave us the address. And so I was at the library, and I was like, well, the Polk City Directory's here. I'll just pick it up, and I'll see who lives at that address. And it was Donna Marvin. Now, I don't know if you guys know Donna Marvin, but she's a board member for the library board, and she's on the selection committee who was also reading this book. And so, and I sent her an email, and I said, you know, are you having a homeowners association meeting tonight? And she said, yes. And I said, okay, I am your new neighbor, and we live kitty corner from each other. So, um, it, so there really is a lot of really good practical advice. Um, when we were talking on the selection committee, a lot of people felt that it was for maybe younger, the younger generation. But I think there's a lot of really great information for anybody. Retirees that. Mm-hmm. You know. So yeah, she has all kinds of things. You know, get get involved, eat local foods, volunteer. Um, there's all kinds of great things, and it was a really enjoyable book. She gives a lot of um, kind of historical background into neighbors and communities, as well as talking about her personal experiences. So the next one is Moon Glow by uh, Michael Chabon. And uh, Mike is the story's narrator, and he visits his grandfather during his grandfather's final days of life. 
And um, the grandfather's tongue has been a little bit loosened by all the drugs that he's on because he was a very closed off person and never talked about his, his prior life. So the grandfather st starts telling Mike this kind of chaotic rambling story of his youthful exploits. And Mike learns for the first time about his grandfather's attempt to blow up the key bridge connecting Arlington, Virginia to Washington, D.C. while he was training to be a GI. And he also learns about his grandfather's assault on a boss who had just fired the grandfather and the resulting prison term that he ended up in. And then he also discovers um, the secret about his grandmother's fragile identity. She was um, somebody who had, um, had tattoos uh, on her arm, so she had been in um, some sort of Nazi prison camp. But hmm. there isn't a lot of talk about what happened to his grandmother, and he, he, he finally learns that. So uh, the story is about his um, grandfather's kind of a deathbed confessions, if you will, of, of a life that's lived to the fullest. Um, he's no, this is this is this is actually fiction. It's a novel. It's fiction, but it, it kind of the the genesis of this book started as a real. He really did go and, and visit his grandfather. Uh, you know, he, his grandfather was kind of a closed off person, and then that kind of gave him the idea to write this book. So the the book is completely fiction. Um, so he's talking about the the grandmother here, um, and this is when they were they were young and first first kind of dating. Um, she walked over to the casement window my grandfather had opened and put her face through the cold air, and she looked up at the moon. A day or two passed its first quarter. She was convulsed by another shudder, and then another. She was definitely crying now, and probably cold as hell. He slung the fur coat over the wicker chairs, and he took off the blazer. It was the same one he had borrowed from his brother to wear to the night in Monte Carlo where they first met. He lowered the blazer over her shoulders, and she leaned into it as if it were a stream of hot water from a shower head. She kept on leaning backwards until she fell against him, and he felt the shock of contact. The weight of her against his chest felt like something she had decided to entrust to him. He wanted badly, wanted only to be worthy of that trust. Um, very, I thought it was a very interesting story. It's kind of, um, you know, it's meant to be uh, uh, somebody's final day, so it is a little bit jarring in terms of jumping from here and there, but the story all connects at the end. Um, and it, I also thought it was quite humorous. I mean, there's some really, uh, the, the grandfather's kind of a bit of a character, and um, the story of when he actually shoots his boss is quite quite funny. <laughs> or um, He doesn't shoot him, he tries to strangle him, but he, he kind of becomes so angry at being fired that he kind of loses control of his actions. But, it, 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 you know, there's parts of it that are really quite poignant, and there's parts of it that are really quite funny. Okay, our next one up is called Small Great Things by Jody Picoult. And Ruth Jefferson is an African-American neonatal nurse with over 20 years of exemplary work performance. Davis Bauer is a newborn son of white supremacist Turk and Brittany Bauer. And after the Bowers complain to the hospital management, Ruth is given a directive not to touch the Bauer baby. But she is the only one in the room when the baby's condition suddenly deteriorates. A neonatal team is uh, called in and frantically tries to revive Davis, but to no avail. 
And initially, Ruth finds herself just suspended without pay, but then her woes dramatically increase when she is charged with murder. So it's uh, the story of what what happens and, and, and the trial and ensuing trial that, that takes place. So on the morning of the trial, and this is Ruth talking, I knock softly on Edison, and that's her son, Edison's door. You ready? I ask. And when he doesn't answer, I turn the knob and step inside. Edison is buried under a pile of quilts, his arms flung over his eyes. Edison, I say more loudly, come on, we can't be late. He's not asleep. I can tell by the depth of his breathing. I'm not going, he mutters. Kennedy, and that's her lawyer, Kennedy had requested that Edison miss school and attend the trial. I didn't tell her that these days going to school had been less of a priority for him, as evidenced by the number of times I'd been called about him skipping class. I've pleaded, I've argued, but getting him to listen to me has become a Herculean task. My scholar, my serious sweet boy, is now a rebel, holed up in his room listening to music so loud that it makes the walls shake or texting friends I did not know he had coming home past curfew, smelling of hard liquor and weed. I have fought and I have cried, and now I'm not sure what else to do. The whole train of our lives is in the process of derailing. This is only uh, one of the cars skidding off the tracks. We can talk about this, I tell him. No, we didn't, he squirts at me, he squints at me. You talked at me. Kennedy says, Someone who's seen as a maternal is harder to picture as a murderer. She says that that picture you present to the jury is sometimes more important than the evidence. Kennedy says, Kennedy says, you talk like she's Jesus. She is, I interrupt. At least she is right now. All my prayers are going to her because she's the only thing that stands between me and a conviction. So, I mean, it's an interesting kind of... Uh, discussion about about race and about what happens, um, you know, when you're kind of put in a situation where you're not allowed to do your job, and then all of a sudden you're in a, you know, you're the person that has to make a decision on how to treat a, a child who's who's failing, and and did she make the right decision, or is this decision going to come back to haunt her? So um, it's quite an interesting story. It has a little bit of a twist at the end. Okay, The Last Days of Night by uh, Graham Moore. And this, this is uh, fiction. The author said he, he tried to write it as nonfiction, and he just didn't have enough information about some of the actual people uh, involved. So he created a, a fictionalized account of, of what he thought happened. But uh, in, 19, in 1888, Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse were locked in a David, David, and that's Westinghouse, and a Goliath, and that's Edison legal battle over patent rights. The question to be answered in the courts was who invented the light bulb, and the winner would control the rights to build public utilities throughout the nation. George Westinghouse turns to an untested young lawyer, Paul Cravath, to fight Edison. And Edison has the money and the will and the utter ruthlessness to pursue any of his goals. As Paul builds his case, he enters into a world of high society 
and he adopts the same win-at-all-cost attitude. So Paul is the, the lawyer here, and Agnes is, uh, initially she's one of his clients from something unrelated, but then they um, end up kind of getting together as boyfriend and girlfriend. So Paul and Agnes stare at each other for a charged few seconds. She was as tense as Paul. If I can prove that Edison lied on his patent, he said, then I don't need to prove that Westinghouse lamps don't infringe. The case I'm currently waging, the argument I've been making, would be a mute point. But instead, we could invalidate Edison's patent, blow the wicked thing out of the water from tip to stern. And then? And then Edison Electric, General Electric Company, and the Westinghouse Electric Company are free to, uh, to produce and sell two different products, and the public can decide which they prefer. No more lawsuits, no more threats. We will be in a situation that Edison has been dreading since he first learned that Westinghouse would challenge him. A fair fight. So I, I found this book really intriguing, but I wanted to know what was really fact and what was really fiction, um, because you know he said it, 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 he did base it a lot on on what was out there, but it kind of goes through the whole um, difference of, of AC and DC current. Alternating current was a lot safer than direct current. Direct current was Edison's product. Alternating current was Westinghouse's product. But Edison had um, a lot of power and a lot of political connections. So it was really um, a very kind of tough fight for Westinghouse. That one I kept, you know, that was a kind of a page turner for me till the end. But like I said, I kind of wondered, okay, really, what, what was true and what wasn't? So the next one is called Homegoing, and I'm not totally sure how to pronounce this author's name. I think it's uh, Yaa, it's, so it's Y-A-A, and Gassi, G-Y-A-S-I. Okay, and this is about um, two half-sisters are born in different villages in 18th century Ghana. And one uh, will marry an English sailor, and live a life in comfort in uh, an English fort called the castle. And this castle was a place where slaves, uh, the British built it and that, as a place to bring um, captured Africans to be sold into slavery. Okay. And then the other sister will be imprisoned in the fort's dungeon before sailing across the Atlantic into slavery in the American South. So each of their descendants and then their succeeding descendants' lives are going to be impacted by the events that are set in motion by the English slave trade. So the chapters alternate between each sister's story and then from the subsequent, their seven generations. So it, they're kind of um, almost little small vignettes about each descendant's life. They're small little segments of each of these, these descendants' lives, and then at the end, she kind of ties it up in a really interesting way. <laughs> so it, it's kind of, um, I would say, I, you, it's like a what if. if. If I was this sister and I had lived here and stayed, this is what might have happened. And if I was the other sister and, you know, had this happened to me. Um, Essie is one of, the, one of the, the two original sisters that the story starts with. And she was originally kind of uh, born into a high life. And she's the one who gets captured and eventually is... Uh, sent to America as a slave. So Essie was born in a small village in the heart of the Asante nation. Big man, and that was her father, um, had thrown an outdoor feasting that lasted for four nights. 
five goats were slaughtered and boiled um, until their tough skins turned tender. It was rumored that Mamie, and that's the mother of both of them, did not stop crying or praising uh, Naomi for the entire duration of the ceremony, nor would she set down baby Essie. You never know what could happen, she kept repeating. At the same time, Big Man was known uh, only as Kwame Arsi. Essie's father was not a chief, but he commanded just as much respect, for he was the best warrior in the Asante nation had ever seen. And at age 25, he had already had five wives and ten children, and everyone in the village knew his seed was strong. His sons, still toddlers, and young children were already tough wrestlers, and his daughters were beauties. So this is how someone starts out, and the story flips on her. It, it was kind of really interesting. I think everybody on the committee really enjoyed the the way this narrative kind of portrayed, because it's not um, you know it's not the same person all the way through. Um, but you see, with each subsequent generation, how uh, slavery impacts them both in America, but also um, in in the family that stays in Africa. Um, the next one is called the Rosie Project by Graham uh, Simonson. Don Tillman is a professor of genetics, and he's looking for the perfect woman to marry. And he approaches finding this woman in a very scientific way. So if you ever watch The Big Bang Theory, if you think about Sheldon, this is kind of <laughs> like Don, Don Tillman's a lot like him. He's made a note of all of his requirements in a 16-page survey to be given to potential candidates for his wife project. Rosie, Rose Jarman clearly fails every part of the wife project measurements. Yet um, Don helps her with a, another project. It was called the, her dad project because she's trying to find out who her biological father is. And as a professor of genetics, he's able to do that. And as the two work together, Don figures out that the scientific approach to romance might not work at all. Hmm. So. So, um, you want to come up, said Rosie, and I was feeling overwhelmed. This is Don talking, meeting Bianca, so that was another woman he had met on his dating, his wife project. Dating, rejection by Bianca, social overlord, uh, overload, discussion of personal matters, and now just when I thought the ordeal was over, Rosie seems uh, to be proposing more conversations. I was sure I could not cope. It's extremely late, I said. I was sure this was the socially acceptable way of saying that I want to go home. Well, the taxi fares go down again in the morning. If I understood correctly, I was now definitely far out of my depth. I needed to be sure that I wasn't misinterpreting her. Are you suggesting I stay the night? Well, maybe. First, you have to listen to the story of my life. Warning, danger, Will Robinson, unidentified alien approaching. I could feel myself slipping into the emotional abyss. I managed to stay calm and respond. Um, unfortunately, I, I have a number of activities scheduled this morning. Uh, routine, normalcy. Rosie opened the taxi door. I willed her to go, but she had more to say. Don, can I ask you something? One question. Do you find me attractive? Jean, and that's his best friend. Jean told me the next day that I had got it wrong, but he was not in the taxi. And after that evening of total sensory overload with the most beautiful woman in the world, 
I believed I did well. I detected a trick question. I wanted Rosie to like me, and I remembered her passionate statement about men treating women as objects. She was testing to see if I saw her as an object or a person. Obviously, the correct answer was the latter. Oh, I haven't really noticed, I told the most beautiful woman in the world. <laughs> so um, this is just a really fun, cute story. Um, Don Tillman is on the um, autism spectrum, so he's fairly high functioning, but he's, he's definitely set with his routines and um, his sense of what's right and wrong, and he, he misinterprets a, a lot of social cues. So um, it, it makes for a very funny and interesting story. So the next one is called Miller's Valley, and this is by Anna Quinlan. This is a, a coming-of-age tale that is set in the turbulent days of the late 1960s and early 1970s. So uh, Mimi Miller's family has lived in Miller's Valley for several generations. However, the government is gradually purchasing the land in the, in the valley's lowest areas so that the valley can be flooded to create a reservoir for a nearby dam. So her mom, who was like an outsider to the community, wants to sell out. And her dad, whose family originally settled in the area years ago, um, does not. And as Mimi ages, uh, every part of her world changes. Her beloved brother returns from Vietnam, a different person. Her best friend marries early and becomes entrapped in motherhood. And Mimi faces a difficult choice to give up on a college uh, education, to keep the family farm going, or to leave Miller's Valley and get an education. So it was a hard time the fall just before I turned 16. August 2nd had come and gone, and Donald, uh, who was her childhood friend, had moved away. He had never arrived. He sent me a postcard saying he couldn't get off work, but his grandfather had already told me he wouldn't be coming. It's that mother of his, he'd said. Don't get me started. He looked so sad, and I knew how he felt. My brother's old shirts hung in their closets like ghosts of the people who once slept in the beds. I missed Tommy, and I missed Donald, and I even missed Eddie sometimes, and Donald's grandmother. And sometimes I thought about her lavender smell and her warm pies. I think maybe more than anything I miss the Mimi I used to be. Getting older wasn't working out so well for me. My brother's words had made me think a lot about what I wanted, where I wanted to end up, and the truth was I had no idea in the world. I figured it should be clear, like that big strip of yellow tape that they held across the end of the course for a sack race at the volunteer fire department picnic. This here, this is how you win. I did well in school. I'd always done well, but now I moved to the head of the class because I didn't have much else to do except homework and helping out Callie, and that's the mother of her brother's child. So the brother and the Callie did not get married. There were things we studied and that I, I couldn't see the point of, like poetry or ancient history. And there were things that made perfect sense to me, like algebra and biology. First term sophomore year, I got the highest honors. The list was in the paper. Three of us, two other boys. Don't let it go to your head, Mary Margaret, said Ruth, and that's her aunt who got the paper late that day, my father taking it out to her when my mother was done with it. But my mother made me sit down at the kitchen table after it had been cleared and wiped, and she put a finger on my name 
like she was marking a point on the map. This is your roadmap to something better than this. It was the only time I'd ever heard her say one single thing that made it seem to me as though her life just wasn't what she wanted it to be. So there's a lot of kind of, um, kind of family secrets that are going on in this story as well. It's, it's kind of an interesting time period because it's right as uh, Roe v. Wade is uh, coming into existence. So there's three women who, three young women who all kind of find themselves unexpectedly pregnant and they all kind of take different decisions. The, um, the brother's girlfriend chooses not to marry the brother. Um, her best friend ends up marrying uh, a, a guy and becomes, uh, you know, a, a mother very young and has several kids right away. And then she finds herself pregnant too. And I don't want to give away what happens to her, but um, it's it, it, it was an interesting time period for me because it, it was kind of like I have vague me memories of the early seventies, and uh, so it kind of goes to what is family. You know, what what makes a family? What makes a home? Is the land the most important thing? Do you hold on to something? Do you let go? So, <laughs> okay. The next one up is called *A Gentleman uh, from Moscow*, and this is by um, Amar Tolles, T-O-W-L-E-S. So, Count Alexander Rostov is in his early 30s when he's sentenced to a lifetime of house arrest by a Bolshevik tribunal in 1922 for being an unrepentant aristocrat. The, the house he lives in is one of Moscow's premier hotels, the Metropole. So as his circumstances are reduced and, and he, um, when the Bolsheviks come in, he's, he, he goes to this tribunal and the only reason he kind of gets let off is because they think he is the author of some pre-revolutionary poetry that was kind of against the czar. So that kind of gets him this lifetime of house arrest. But he's, he's moved from a really luxurious suite into this little garret um, up in the attic. And so he befriends the, the hotel staff and some of the visitors <laughs> while he's trying to find a purpose to his existence because uh, he can't leave. If he leaves the hotel, then he's going to be arrested and um, probably sent to Siberia. So he begins a friendship with this seven-year-old girl, Nina, and um, Nina's really resourceful, and she managed to pilfer a, a master key to the hotel so she can get into all kinds of secret places. And um, they kind of go on all these adventures in the hotel together. And then um, years later, Nina comes back to him, and she was um, an ardent communist, and she kind of gets caught up in a, a, a purge, and, and her and her husband get sent to Siberia, but she needs somebody to take care of her daughter. She doesn't want her daughter to have to go to Siberia. So she comes back to him, and she leaves him in charge of her daughter, Sophia. And years have gone by, and he sees, you know, S Sophia start to grow, and he realizes he doesn't want her to end up in um, the same kind of situation where she's trapped. So he starts plotting a way to get her to a Western country. This is one of the adventures that uh, the Count has with, with Nina. Says, Needless to say, the Count followed Nina up the stairs to the second floor. Having skirted the entrance to the Boyarsky and ensured the coast was clear, they used Nina's key to open an unmarked door to the balcony. Down below, hundreds of men were already in chairs, and another hundreds were conferring at the aisles as three impressive fellows took their seats behind a long wooden table on the dais. 
which is just to say the assembly had nearly assembled. As this was the 2nd of August, there had already been two assemblies earlier that day, and temperatures in the ballroom were about 90 degrees. Nina skirted out behind the balustrade on her hands and knees, and when the Count bent over to do the same, the seam at the back of his pants gave way. Mared, he muttered. Shh, says Nina. The first time the Count had joined Nina on the balcony, he couldn't help but feel some astonishment at how profoundly the life of the ballroom had changed. Not ten years before, all of Moscow society would have been gathered in their finery under the grand chandeliers to dance the mazurka and toast the czar. But after witnessing a few of the assemblies, the Count had come to an even more astonishing conclusion that despite the revolution, the room had barely changed at all. At that moment, for example, two young men were coming through the doors looking game for the fray. But before exchanging a word with a soul, they crossed the room in order to pay their respects to the old man seated by the wall. Presumably this elder had taken part in the 1905 revolution, or penned a pamphlet in 1880, or dined with Karl Marx back in 1852. Whatever his claim to eminence, the old revolutionaries acknowledged the deference of the two young Bolsheviks with a shelf-assured nod of the head, all while sitting in the very chair from which the Grand Duchess and Apova had received the greetings of the dutiful princes at her annual Easter ball. So it's really a fascinating story. I, I could not put this book down. I just wanted to know what happened. Um, there's lots of references to Russian literature. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. You think, okay, if he's, if he's sentenced to life in this hotel, what could possibly happen? But there's all kinds of adventures, all kinds of neat people that he meets uh, along the way who um, help him with his plans to, to get Sofia out of the Soviet Union. So then the last one, our, uh, the last one of our top ten is called um, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. Okay, and so um, J.D. Vance grew up in the Rust Belt town uh, that was once prosperous enough to provide manufacturing jobs for working class families like his own. So this is a coming of age memoir and he takes a critical look at the economic and social calamities that impacted his family, um, his relatives, and his neighbors. But Vance was also fortunate enough um, because every time he faced a, a decision uh, where it would be difficult to recover from a wrong choice, he found somebody who, who gave him the guidance to succeed. So he's kind of a success story from this group of people that for the most part have not succeeded. Um, most of his peers end up kind of in a, in a situation that he uh, outlines as, uh, as, he calls it this, this hillbilly culture. His relatives initially were from Appalachia and they went to manufacturing jobs in Ohio and Michigan. Um, so he kind of talks about that whole I-75 <laughs> corridor between, um, you know, like Detroit and, and, and Kentucky and Tennessee. And um, so it's an, it's an interesting commentary about, like, uh, what's kind of going on in that area of the country today. But also he talks about his own personal life and, and the people in his life. And I, I thought it was really um, kind of inspiring. He's, he's a conservative writer, but I don't get the impression from reading this that it's a, you're not getting like bashed over the head with you know conservatism is great and liberalism is terrible it's kind of more just a 
kind of frank discussion of this is what happened. These were what people's ideas were, what was going to happen in the future, and this didn't necessarily work out for them. In general, he's talking about the, in, uh, he calls it the hillbilly culture, but he says, our homes are a chaotic mess. We scream and yell at each other like we're spectators at a football game. At least one member of the family uses drugs, sometimes the father, sometimes the mother, sometimes both. Um, at especially stressful times, we hit and punch each other, all in front of the rest of the family, including children. Much of the time, neighbors hear what's happening. A bad day is when neighbors call the police to stop the drama. Our kids go to foster care, but they never stay there long. We apologize to our kids, and the kids believe we're really sorry, and we are, but then we act just as mean a few days later. We don't study as children, and we don't make our kids study when we're parents. Our kids perform poorly in school, and we might get angry with them, but we never give them the tools, like peace and quiet at home to succeed. Even the best and the brightest uh, will go to college close to home if they survive the war zone in their own home. I don't care if you got into Notre Dame, we say. You can get a fine, cheap education at a community college. And the irony is that for poor like us, an education at Notre Dame is both cheaper and finer. We choose not to work when we should be looking for jobs. Sometimes we get a job, but it won't last. We get fired for tardiness for stealing merchandise and selling it on eBay, or for having a customer complain about the smell of alcohol on our breath, or for taking 35-minute restroom breaks per shift. We talk about the value of hard work, but we tell ourselves that the reason we're not working is some perceived unfairness. Obama shut down the coal mines, or all the jobs went to Chinese. And these are all the lies we tell each other to solve the cognitive dissidence, the broken connection between the world we see and the values we preach. So I thought this was really fascinating. I, I grew up in Flint, Michigan, which is a you know GM town, and I knew a lot of people who um, whose family had family in Appalachia, and, and it was um, this kind of hit home to me in a lot of ways. But and I also went to Notre Dame, so I thought that was kind of funny that comment there about um, uh, you know that there there are a lot of opportunities out there for for people who are poor, but a lot of times they don't have. You know, they don't even have the beginning resources. Mm -hmm. And to grow up in a really chaotic life, and, and his, his own mother was a drug addict, so you've got, you know, that dysfunction going on. He does have family members that step in. And like I said, every, every time he's really in a critical situation, somebody was able to step in and kind of guide him in the right direction. And he, he obviously did well. He, he's, I think he's a lawyer. I think he went to, yeah, he went to Yale Law School. He went to Ohio State University. I mean, he's really kind of, risen above where he started off, but he's the exception to the rule. And I think he has some really interesting insights for, for what's currently going on in Appalachia. So, so. Katie, how many books did you read? Did the committee read? Did you say you got it down to the 10 that you well, read, or was it even more? Well, we start off with about six, about 65, and the very right. first time we meet, we meet the beginning of February, and we go through and, and we, we kind of toss about, I would say maybe somewhere between a third and a quarter and, and we're looking for books that are not overtly political or overtly religious so you know we we usually always get somebody says uh you know the bible or something like that so we're not gonna you know we're not gonna put that um we're not gonna put those types of books on um we also kind of look at what's been you know if we think something has has is already out in the community and is truly popular 
we try to avoid that because we're trying to pick something that might be a little bit novel in a way. Mm -hmm. The Rosie Project has was out in like 2013, and it actually had made it uh, on a couple lists prior, and then had gotten you know gotten gotten knocked out kind of in the final rounds. And there were a couple of people that really went to bat for it this year, I would say. So that one makes us. It's you know sometimes things. Uh, there's a lot of newer items on there. Um, last year we had a book that was published. I, I'm trying to think. It was like in the 1980s, and it was really popular in the 1980s. And um, there were a lot of kind of older people who had read it when it was first popular. But there was a whole generation of readers on the committee that had never heard of it. And so we kind of tossed around that idea: Do we want to re, you know, look at it? Because for the older people, you know, they might have read it at a different point in their life, and now, you know, 30 years later, they're at a different stage in their life. You know, we, we, I thought that was kind of interesting. In the end, it didn't make it. So I mean, there's just. It really does depend upon who's on the committee, and I would say if anybody is interested in, in being on the committee, we're always looking for new members. It's a lot of reading in, in uh, February and March. You don't have to read the books cover to cover till we get down towards the end. A lot of times, because, um, you know, one time I had like 10 books to read in two weeks, and I just, you know, I, I can't, I, I'm a decent reader. But, um, so, you know, we just want to kind of get a feel for wh what the book is, and if we think it appeals, it has a broad appeal. Sometimes books are really, are really you know, well-written, beautiful, lyrical books you know they would be high up on like a you know college professor's uh, list of recommendations but it it's not really going to appeal to somebody who's got a ninth grade reading level so um, we're, we're trying to get a broad interest and that's that's hard too last year we had more nonfiction, I think mm -hmm. um, this year we had a little, little bit of more fiction to it so it just kind of depends upon what gets nominated but you know, I find as I get older, I like nonfiction much better. Were there any books, any non? We've got two on, two, on the list. Two on the list. list but yeah, anybody can nominate things. So yeah. when we we did, you know, we did go through and look at them. Um, I'm just trying to think of what what was an example of it. It didn't seem we had as many nonfiction this year. We had um, a couple of them where they had taken real people and had made fictional accounts of their lives. One was set like in the Civil War era, and I kind of struggled with that, and I kind of that's I kind of struggled with Last Days of Night for that same reason. Like when you've got real people mm -hmm. and you're fictionalizing their thoughts and beliefs, like I I don't know if that's necessarily if true or fair to them. Um, but that's just my personal perspective. But Did you count that as historical fiction. Um, this one this, this one would yes. definitely be. And that that to me was really interesting. They talked a lot about you know, society, the high society from that era, and um, just the power that the super wealthy, that was the robber baron era, so the super wealthy had a lot of power. And that, I mean, I, I found myself in the end wanting to know what was really true and what, what wasn't. Mm -hmm. And he does. That The one nice thing about that book, I would say, at the end, he does kind of give a little bit yeah, of description about, you know, what, what so you know, forth. where he got the information from and kind of where he maybe took a little bit of, you know, leave of what the true facts are. So that, that I enjoyed in that book. How many people are on the committee? Varies, usually around 20. I think we had a little less. I think we had 17 this year. When someone starts on the committee, they're usually on it for three years. If they want to get off, they can get off at any time. But usually it's three, you know, three years, and then we rotate because we want new people. We're, we're trying to get a range of age, age ranges, and we're trying to get a mixture between men and women. So it's kind of 
you know, but it's, you also have to have somebody who's willing to read. <laughs> so right. and has the time. So yeah, like I said, if you're if you're ever interested in being on the committee, we're always looking for new members. So <laughs> what I like is it, it has me read books I normally wouldn't, wouldn't. read. Mm-hmm. Well, I nominated a book and it got on the ten. Well, good. <laughs> we hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. If you would like to comment on this or any of our podcasts, you can do so by visiting our podcast page at lincolnlibraries.org slash podcasts, where you can also download our podcasting theme music for use as your ringtone. You can become a fan of our podcasts by searching for Lincoln City Libraries Podcasts on Facebook. (laughs) 